Hi, and welcome to the Master Investors Podcast. My name is James Faulkner. I'm the editor of Master Investor Magazine. And in today's episode, I'm joined by the well-known fund manager and market commentator, Tim Price. In this episode, we'll be talking about how to preserve wealth in an era of financial repression and central bank intervention in markets. Tim's book on this topic, Investing Through the Looking Glass, is highly recommended and is a fantastic read for anyone who wants to understand the current distortions within markets and how investors can navigate them. But before we get started, please take a few moments to listen to our disclaimer. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. The information in this podcast is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorised financial advisor. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future returns. Here's the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Master Investors Podcast. We've got a very special guest today. Tim Price is a fund manager, and he also writes the final word column for Master Investor Magazine. For those of you who aren't familiar with Tim, if Tim could just give a brief introduction to his um, how he actually got into investing and what he does in fund management. Sure. Hi, James. Hi, everybody. So from my perspective, I read English at university and then intended to go into journalism. That didn't work out when I joined the job market, entered the job market in 1991. So in a a fit of desperation, I uh, ended up as a bond salesman instead. So I spent about a decade in fixed income sales, working for a variety of institutions, including what was then Paribas Capital Markets and Merrill Lynch. And then after about 10 years, I moved into private client portfolio management. And that's pretty much where I've been ever since. What were your earliest experiences of investing? And what, what was it that sort of drew you into investing as a career, do you think? I mean, in, in the very early days, it was simply any port in a storm. So I just took the first offer that came my way. From that, I I developed quite a, let's just say, an enthusiasm for the markets. I mean, the markets are, I think most people would accept they're quite interesting. You know, there's a lot going on. You're, you're basically playing games, a game against some of the brightest people in the world. <laughs> and I think probably the the first seminal influence I experienced would have been the the ERM crisis of uh, September 1992. So I was still pretty pretty wet behind the ears then. But I saw firsthand, I had a set of ringside seats to the, the, the ethnic cleansing of sterling from the ERM. <laughs> and it, it was a, a useful insight into just how duplicitous politicians can be and how and how economically illiterate politicians can be i mean i remember the you know the, the black wednesday whatever it was the, the day itself when when sterling got got ejected from that from the mechanism and what's interesting is that i was working for a, a really quite poor quality japanese bank at the time and everybody in the dealing room i was working in just went mental when you know rates got jacked up and then jacked up again and everyone's going oh my god what about my mortgage blah 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 and they were <laughs> they were purely thinking about themselves and you know paying the mortgage the the contrary example is what was happening at a firm that my brother was working at at the time which is a more sophisticated investment bank and the first uh, rate hike was met with stunned silence apparently and the second rate hike was met with just outright laughter so depending on the caliber of the institution you were at at the time and the, the caliber of the people you were working with, you got a sense of, you know, it was either, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened or this is just ridiculous. And, you know, and fairly quickly, of course, the whole thing just dissolved. We were out. And then and this is why I think it's relevant, because it has a bearing on what's happening in relation to, to Brexit today. And we've had Project Fear for the last nearly three years and all the rest. 
know, what politicians said was it's going to be a disaster. And of course, leaving the ERM was the best thing that ever happened to Sterling and the best thing that ever happened to the UK economy. Because we'd, with the benefit of hindsight, and this wasn't clear to me at the time, it became subsequently clear, but with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we'd gone into this, you know, we, Sterling should never have been within a million miles of the exchange rate mechanism. You know, <laughs> just to sort of give people an overview of the ERM, that's when Sterling was kind of um, pegged to the Deutschmark, wasn't it, to sort of maintain the exchange rate? Exactly. So I remember that. I remember the, very distinctly the, the the lower rate again from Sterling against the Deutsche Mark was two spot seven seven eight, and if we in a Sterling traded below that level, we were out. And so I remember a, a trader at the time who, who went by the name of Strides because, of course, back then every trader had to have a sort of nickname. Nobody had real names. Everyone was called like Wobbler or Nosher or Damage <laughs> or Knife. Well, this guy went by the name of Strides, and he said, "If if Sterling trades below two seventy seven eighty, I will I will take off my trousers in this dealing room." And of course, he immediately did, and he didn't. So you got to you know it was a perfect insight into all the sort of frailties of human nature. But the the reality was that you know we'd gone in at the wrong rate. Our economy was basically in recession already, and that's one of the reasons why I ended up taking a job in the city because I could find a job in the city, whereas I couldn't find one in either journalism or advertising, which were the areas I was planning to apply to. So I, I, at any port in a storm, I went for the city job, the, the bond sales job. But the reality is that I think the fact that I found it tricky getting a, a position was a partly reflection of the fact that the UK economy was not in rude health back then. Anyhow, so the sterling had entered the exchange rate mechanism, was pegged to the Deutschmark. And in the meantime, Germany was booming. Basically, it was completely impossible to have a, an exchange rate policy that satisfied our economic conditions and Germany's. So the practical result was ultimately, hey-ho, we got we got booted out. But we should never have been in in the first place. So you, you kind of got into investing almost by accident. But in terms of your investing style, you're a value investor. Obviously, that wasn't by accident. So what, what was it that, that steered you in that direction, do you think? It's a good question. I think my, my sense is that, I mean, there's various types of investment styles that the four that I think most people would accept are, the, are like the sort of the, the, the points of the compass, if you like, are value, growth, quality, and momentum. Yeah. So value, I would define value as trying to pick up dollar bills for 50 cents. So in other words, finding something where you think you've got a, a sense of inherent value or book value, if you like. The kind of cigar butt investing that Warren Buffett used to engage in. <laughs> well, cigar butt investing, but the thing, the thing about the cigar butt term is it implies that the thing's basically clapped out and it's worth, it has got one last puff in it and then that's it. Whereas the kind, so there's there's all, all shades of, you know, there's a big continuum here. Uh, so just in terms of value investing alone, you've got kind of early... Warren Buffett or what you might call ben, Benjamin Graham value, which is a bit like cigar butt investing, which is there's, there's one last puff, but you can pick up the cigar for free. But the, the kind of value investing that I feel innately drawn to, I don't know what the best way to describe it is, but for, for me, it's it's buying, the, the long phrase would be, the long descriptive phrase would be buying shares in high quality businesses with principled shareholder friendly management when it's possible to buy those shares at a meaningful discount to what you believe the inherent value of those companies actually is. So it's a slightly long-winded way of putting it. Mm. But in essence, what, what you... So in other words, I'm, 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 I'm sort of kind of injecting an element of quality to the whole debate. I, what I'm not interested in is, is just, uh, let's call it deep value, which is kind of a bit like turnaround investing, whereby you find something that's completely you know, bombed out 
But the thing is, it may never recover. So it may end up just being a value trap forever. In other words, it never gets back to its what you believe its inherent value is. So for me, it's a bit more like a kind of quality value argument. And I suppose in, Warren Buffett himself has kind of moved towards that style of investing, hasn't he, in, in his later years? Because I suppose one of the reasons for that is that there aren't all that many stocks around that are trading to discount to book value these days. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. So I think you're absolutely right. Warren Buffett, and he, he's made no secret of this fact. So Warren Buffett began his career very much as an acolyte of, of Benjamin Graham and classic value investing. And I think if I'm right, Warren Buffett is the only graduate of Ben Graham's class who got an A or an A, an A plus. In other words, Buffett was always the star pupil. But as you say, there's there's not necessarily there's not necessarily that many businesses shares of businesses around that are trading, let's say, well below book value. But then that takes you into another takes you down another interesting uh, avenue because Warren Buffett tends to tends to stick to his own market, uh, which is fair enough because the U.S. economy is the biggest in the world and the U.S. stock market is the biggest in the world. Nevertheless, Buffett, I think, is partly he's partly constrained by size. Now he's you now Berkshire Hathaway is so huge he can only buy basically mega cap stocks. Whereas, I mean, in terms of the business that I'm responsible for, that I help help to manage a, a fund and, and manage accounts within, we don't have any of those problems. You know, we manage a few hundred million. We will never likely run into capacity or size constraints anytime soon. And as a result of that, we can cast our net. For that, in, in terms of the equity piece of portfolios, we can cast our net basically far wider than Buffett ever can, and we can do it globally. So right now, we're finding the best value situations, i.e. quality value. Um, you know, there's highly profitable businesses, but for whatever reason, they're trading uh, at a, what we would consider a meaningful discount to what they're really worth. We're finding the most standout, compelling value opportunities right now in markets like Japan and Vietnam. Whereas Buffett won't be won't be fishing there, possibly because he, you know, I mean, it's fair to say he won't necessarily, you know, want to invest in those markets. But he's got, you know, he he's perfectly happy buying buying U.S. stocks. So we, we we're not comparing like with like anymore. I just want to move on to the the market backdrop because you you recently um, wrote a book called Investing Through the Looking Glass, which kind of sort of sets out your worldview, as it were. And basically, you, you're kind of saying that you know the the current financial world is one of massive distortions which have created a, a minefield for investors you've got quantitative easing zero interest rates negative yield in government bonds and asset prices kind of inflated across the board so are we are we in a situation now where investing is is so so dangerous that people at some point along the lines are going to find themselves in a, a really deep sort of situation um where you know things are going to blow up in the faces yes i mean i think that's that has to be the risk the uh, the, the, the backdrop if you like or the backstory as, as i would relate and as, as i as i try and try and portray in the book is you know the financial world changed in september 2008 so you had if we go back a little bit before that so you had the u.s economy u.s economy had the dot-com bust in the early 2000s and then in res- partly in response to that the fed lowered rates by lowering rates, they then triggered a housing boom. When the housing boom then got out of control and exploded, that imperiled the banking system. So you had, you know, the, all these CDOs and you know, whatnot, all these various acronyms spread, dispersed widely throughout the world. Now, every every bank, to a greater or lesser extent, was in, impacted by that. And in response to that, 
Firstly, they bailed out all of the banks, and they probably shouldn't have done. Well, they definitely shouldn't have done, in my view. But they also cut rates again. And not only do they cut rates, but they've now cut rates to such a level that all rates are basically either zero or negative, which is such an economic absurdity that you'd think you'd never, ever see that. But we are seeing it. You know, you have to invest in the world as it is, not, not as we would like it to be. And so we've had, quote, emergency rates now for 10 years, but that has distorted everything. So cutting rates down to zero, and in some cases even below it, has hugely distorted uh, financial asset prices, and, and it's, it's, it's distorted, it's blown up property again, property prices. But the impact of QE has, has, has added fuel to that fire as well. So you've had literally trillions of dollars, pounds, euros, and yen, and renminbi created out of nothing, out of thin air, and again, pumped, recycled back into the financial markets, primarily through the bond markets. And that has inflated the prices of everything above what most people would consider fair value. And I suppose another word for it is financial repression. And that's kind of driven people, even sort of, you know, people who are just wanting to save for a rainy day, it's driven them into risk assets such as equities. Because the stock market is the only game in town, effectively. Yeah. So so in that situation, I mean, what, what, what can governments do when, when the next recession comes along? Because obviously, there's no scope to, um, to, to lower interest rates, because they're already at sort of historic lows. Yeah, I mean, they can, they can maybe nudge them a little bit lower. But as you say, to all intents and purposes, to all practical extent, they're, they're, they're already at rock bottom. Well, I, I, wrote, um, I wrote a book for more like a private publication book. So it's, you'll have difficulty finding it anywhere, but it was called The War on Cash a few years ago. And one thing governments could do, I'm not advocating they do it in a million years, but knowing the way governments act, they may well yet do it or attempt to do it, is if basically you can't, cut rates any lower, you then basically force people by hook or by crook into electronic bank accounts. In other words, you get rid of physical cash, bearer security cash, you lock people into an electronic system, and then you can make interest rates as low as you like. You can make them negative 5, negative 10%. But that's that's kind of a hardcore policy, and I hope we never get there. But one thing we could do, I mean, the one thing we're now seeing, and the things have become, things have been so absurd for so long that you know, people are you know, policymakers are really pushing the envelope now of, of, of mm-hmm. massive uh, you know uncertainty uh, and absurdity. And one thing you're now seeing the rise of is so-called modern monetary theory, which is effectively call it helicopter money. So it would not be beyond the wit of man that suddenly central banks stop printing money and then just basically sending us all checks. And it's interesting that in the US, the um, the governor of the the Fed, Jerome Powell, recently said that QE is no longer considered unconventional monetary policy yeah exactly it's like it's i mean we're all basically like frogs slowly being boiled alive in in a pot (laughs) and the temperature has just steadily risen for the last 10 plus years so now they can get central bankers and you know again policy wonks in government can pull all kinds of outrageous stunts now because people have got used to this stuff and if we look at the other sort of big lever on the economy what the government has fiscal policy there isn't any scope to really use that as a fight against a, a, the next downturn either, is there? Because debt levels have, have now surpassed the levels that they were at before the, the last financial crisis. Yeah, and this is really freaky. So I think most objective observers would accept that the problem, the crisis of 2007, 2008 was a, was a crisis of too much debt. And yet mysteriously, it has become accepted wisdom that you can solve a crisis of too much debt by creating more debt. 
which I guess I, part of the problem is, I mean, there's a book that I keep referring to because I think it's, it, for me, it had a huge influence on my thinking and my outlook on the markets. And it's called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And I'd recommend it to anybody, whether they're sort of financially you know, engaged or, or not, or invest, investors, active, passive, whatever. It's just very interesting. But the, the central concept of Sapiens is that what, what the author sets out to answer is a question that you know going back into you know pre you know prehistory there were several versions of, of ancient man so you had homo sapiens which is as we survived but you also had homo habilis you had homo neanderthalis homo australiensis all these different forms of early man what was it about us that meant that we won that evolutionary fight and what he suggests and it may well be that there's never going to be concrete proof of this but what he strongly suggests is what discriminated us what's what separated us from our ancient ancestors in terms of evolutionary success is that we love stories we love telling stories we love believing stories and in other words to, to suddenly accelerate to now where we are today if you look at the, the makeup of modern society uh, and that includes the financial markets nearly everything we we believe in has no actual physical form or substance whatsoever. It's completely intangible. It is effectively just a story. It's just a narrative. But I, I happen to think that's a very persuasive argument because if you, if, you, if you really drill down on this, and it takes a while to adjust to this argument if you're coming at it cold. But if you take that argument, what is money? Money is just, I'm trying to think, it might have been Satyajit Das who said, or described money as money, the money we use is the abstraction of an abstraction. <laughs> In other words, originally it was something like gold, gold and silver. And that, you know, people accepted that. It was, it was rare, it was precious, et cetera, et cetera. And then the bankers suddenly twigged that, well, you didn't have to exchange gold. You could exchange notes deriving from gold. And that became paper money. And now we don't even have to have paper money because now we can just have blips, electronic digits on a screen. But they have no tangibility. There's no substance to it. It's all, it's all basically a narrative. And to, to, to go back to the, the question you asked earlier, in terms of you know what's the stability or otherwise of the system. Personally, I think the only thing you can conclude is that after 10 years of the most reckless monetary experimentation in, in history, the system has shifted from what you might call a stable equilibrium to uh, an unstable equilibrium. And what that means is it's, it's like, for example, snow falling on a mountaintop on a snow mass. The snow mass has now become unstable. So we can accept that the snow mass has become unstable. What we cannot say for sure is which snowflake is going to cause an avalanche. What we just know from all prior experiences, at some point, we're going to have an avalanche, but we just can't predict exactly when. And what kind of, what form is that avalanche going to take? Because central bankers are constantly worried about deflation. We've got a, a huge debt pile. So presumably, the only way out of this is you know, to go down the, the road of inflation. Well, I think that's absolutely right. So if I look at, for example, what we're doing with our clients, uh, and, and I, I should add that you know one of the early mistakes we made was putting too much store by big macroeconomic narratives. But the reality is the macro is so impossible to call now, and it has been impossible to call for so long. We don't, we don't really bother. In other words, we don't have one conviction, high conviction call and say, this is what's going to happen. We just try and diversify as, as widely and practically and usefully as we can. So... I think you've already alluded to it, but I, I strongly suspect that the end phase of this predicament will be inflationary because government has a vested in governments have a vested interest in inflating away these colossal debt piles. 
but we may well get a period of deflation before that. So if if you don't want to make any big bets on this, but just want to hedge your hedge yourself accordingly, the answer is to hedge against both inflation and deflation. Now, being pragmatic, I would argue that you know one of the conclusions you can draw from two thousand and seven eight, the Northern Rock experience, you know, the banking crisis, the post Lehman environment, is that if any high street bank starts flirting with insolvency or bankruptcy again. The government will just print. You know, the, the Bank of England and, and the other central banks will just print. You know, they've made that perfectly clear. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that you, the depositors need to worry about the, you know, the solvency of their of their cash on deposit. Shareholders should probably be worried, and bondholders should probably be worried. But as far as you know, depositors are concerned, I think that's the answer. They're just going to print because they haven't got any alternative now. There's no practical alternative. But in terms of the deflation versus inflation argument, if you think that there's possibility of of both outcomes, you hold assets that should hold up tolerably well in a deflation. And if I were to single out anything in that environment, it would probably... And basically, we have next to no exposure to bonds full stop, because I don't think bonds are remotely safe stores of value. Bonds are now return-free risks. But if you were to hold, a, let's say, a store of a hopeful value in a deflation, I think that would be short-term US government debt or possibly short-term UK government debt or gilts. But that's that's kind of a very grudging investment. It's not something I would, I would really recommend. Right. But if you wanted something that's a hedge against inflation, then possibly that's a very high quality but but very fairly priced equity because that's a claim on the real economy, not not a nominal asset. But also you hold an asset that has through time since time immemorial has, has held its value in inflationary periods and that's stuff like gold and silver because they can't be printed on demand I suppose the, the problem with with gold and silver is that as well as being a, a hedge against inflation it's a very long-term hedge against inflation so if you look you know over the past so many thousand years gold has held its value but it can underperform for very long periods of time so in effect it's more of a kind of like a portfolio insurance policy isn't it yeah, I mean, once you start going down the rabbit hole in relation to the monetary system and what money is and what it should be, after a while, you start having kind of like a life-altering experience. So I had the fortune, I think it was good fortune, to be mixing in sort of classical economic circles as far back as 2007 and earlier. And these are these people are sometimes called Austrian school economics, so the people who are influenced by people like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, and so on. And the Austrian school effectively believes in, it's a very libertarian school, it believes in sound money and small government more than anything else. And the Austrians have always had a kind of love, love-in relationship with gold, because gold is as close as we've ever got in human history to sound money. And so some of the guys that I've been mixing with have said things along the following lines. So this is a quote from one of them. Gold is not even an investment. It is a conscious decision to refrain from investing until the return of an honest monetary system makes a calculation of relative asset prices possible. <laughs> now that's quite a deep and profound statement. But if you if you if you if you drill down into the underlying, I think there's an awful lot of wisdom buried within it. So the, in other words, to go back to the earlier point, yes, gold and silver, and actually everything is volatile. But are you talking about the volatility of gold? Let's take gold specifically. Are you talking about the volatility of gold or are you talking about the volatility of the currency in which you price it? Because I would say that the supposed volatility of gold is simply a manifestation of the declining purchasing power of the US dollar or the pound sterling or whichever other currency is your reference rate. 
because you know if, if we go back to science to proper science here rather than the kind of vo- you know the nonsense bastard science of economics or so keynesian <laughs> economics then values have to have a value denominators have to have to have a denomination so let's take gold or let's go let's go back further so let's take a kilogram so what's a kilogram well if you look it up on wikipedia a, ki- a kilo is the prescribed mass or weight of a given amount of material of a specific type held at a specific temperature at a specific altitude in a laboratory in northern France. Okay, And there's a definition of what a kilo is. What's a dollar? What's a dollar worth? What's the definition of a dollar's value? There isn't one. But there is one for gold because the an ounce of gold is always and forever an ounce of gold. An ounce of gold in London is the same as an ounce of gold in Paris or Frankfurt or New York or Singapore or Tokyo. So there's, if you like, there's a useful store of value. But of course, we don't price things in ounces of gold, but we can, but we don't price things in ounces of gold. We price things in dollars and, and pounds and euros. But people should ask themselves, what are those currencies really worth? And to go back to our friend, Mr. Harari, those currencies are only worth the, the, the value of those currencies is only what confidence in them allows it to be. So we're going through this monumental period in economic and financial history whereby central banks are pretty much stress testing confidence in fiat currency to destruction. And although I don't wouldn't necessarily want it to happen, we have to acknowledge there is a risk that at some point they're just going to put their they're going to press down too much on the accelerator and people are going to say, you know what, I've had enough of this game. I no longer want to play. I'm, you know, I'm packing up my bags. I'm taking down the tent, and I'm gonna. I'm basically gonna retreat from fiat. I'm gonna own something else. Just delving into the argument for gold a little bit more. I suppose one of the main attractions of gold is the fact that it's it's finite. So, given that, what, what what's your view on uh, things like cryptocurrencies that are also finite? Well, are they? Because of course, with an electronic uh, form of money, it's not it's not finite at all. Or, or rather, say Bitcoin is finite to the extent that there's only ever going to be whatever it is, 21 yeah. million units or, or whatever. But I'm not sufficiently technologically advanced to, to be able to prove that independently. I just have to take somebody's word for that. To answer your question, uh, my jury is out on on cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. as a classic as a classical economics uh, follower, an Austrian sympathizer, if you wish. Uh, I believe in having multiple currencies because I believe there should be a free market in in money, in in currencies, and in the currency choice. So that has to mean that I, I support the idea of cryptocurrency, but I'm not convinced that these things are any stabler than than any other form right now because they seem to be, you know, they seem to me to be oscillating around just like dot com stocks did 20 years ago. Given that um, you know you, you say that true diversification remains the last free lunch in finance, what other assets? Would you consider adding to your portfolio at the moment? Do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, for, the, for for as long as I can remember, we've always used four asset classes just to diversify the the mix. And I should add that you know what what we're doing won't necessarily appeal uh, conceptually to every investor. So the the type of investors we're typically dealing with these are wealthy people. They've made their money. They may or may not be in retirement, but we're talking about basically life savings a fixed and irreplaceable pot of capital. These are sacred assets. Now, that's clearly puts them in a different camp to say people who are in their 20s and 30s who are looking to take quite big potential risks uh, in terms of capital gains and losses in pursuit of higher returns over time. That's not the game we're in. We're, we're much more in a game of capital preservation and absolute return investing than just going you know, hell for growth. 
Okay, so we're very much pursuing an absolute return mindset. But within that mindset, we've typically allocated to four types of assets. So we're typically allocated to objectively high quality bonds. But unfortunately, there aren't that many of them anymore. And if there are, if there are any ones of objectively high quality, they don't yield anything. Um, so that's, that's now de minimis for us. But the other three asset classes we still very much use, and they are, in no particular order, explicit value equity from around the world, completely unconstrained, and then a, a particular momentum strategy, which is known as systematic trend following, which is very much a price momentum approach. We can talk a bit more about that if you, if you wish. And then the third or fourth component is real assets. And for us, that's always been predominantly the monetary metals, gold and silver, and then equity interests of monetary metals, if we can buy them at a, a sensible price. So effectively, you said that the four, the four pillar models now become a three pillar model. Those three pillars be basically being unconstrained value equity, systematic trend following, and precious metals. And what about property? Well, property could easily fit within the real asset component, but the, the, the practical reality is that for most of our clients, they're already long up the wazoo on property anyway. So the property isn't a requirement to double down. And the other issue is, of course, you know, is the property market cheap? Now, you know, we talk about asset classes as if there's one single asset within it, but of course, that's not the case. It's a lot more subtle than that. So the most important decision you can make as an investor is the starting point, the starting valuation of what you buy when you elect to buy it. So any investment, no matter how great or lousy the underlying quality is, it can be a great investment if you buy it cheaply enough. Yeah. But you know, property is it's like any, any other asset class. It depends. You know, the, what's the phrase? You know, location, location, location. My feeling is for what it's worth. I mean, nearly all our clients are UK-based and then the nearly all UK ResDom clients. So they, they live here and they pay tax here. But whether they are or not, I don't think the UK property market is, well, the UK property market does not fill me with huge, huge confidence right now. And property is ultimately a bit of a bond-like asset. And the other problem with property, particularly in the UK right now, is is what you can just call political risk. Because the, I hope it's a very small probability, but we have to acknowledge it is a above zero probability that we get a Corbyn McDonald government in the next X months. And if that happens, UK property prices are going to go through the floor. So for any number of reasons, we're just a little bit circumspect about loading up the truck on real estate. And that moves me on to my next point, which is flashpoints around the world at the moment. Obviously, uh, we've talked about the, the the economic backdrop looking pretty pretty dire, given all the, um, the the sort of dislocations in asset prices. Um, well, I mean, just just to, sorry to interrupt, but just on that point, I mean, how the economy models through this is is an open question. I mean, I suppose in a sense we're kind of talking about the, the global economy, but as far as probably most of our, our listeners are concerned, it's really a function of you know, what most matters. It's not so much how the global economy does; it's just how how, how the businesses whose shares we own do. And if you, so in other words, to that extent, if you own a portfolio, if your equity portfolio consists of broadly defensive, themselves diversified, high quality businesses, unless you think the world economy is going to go into a tailspin, there's no real reason to suddenly start chucking these things out of the window. Sure. If we sort of scan in the globe right now, um, we've, we've, we've had almost a decade of, um, of the bull market, the current bull market. So presumably, we must be due a bear market pretty soon. Well, you you say that, and I wouldn't be minded to disagree with you. But the the you know the the get out of jail free card for the bulls is we've also had ten years of you know extraordinary monetary accommodation, the like of which no one has ever seen before in history. So lots to say we don't get another ten years of that. So all bets are off. Yeah, 
And just just picking something out of out of the uh, the, the long lists of worries at the, at the moment. What what worries you the most? Do you think? This is not meant to be a glib response, by the way. The, <laughs> the single biggest thing that keeps me up at the, awake at night is the idea that a gigantic meteorite made of pure gold could crash into the Earth. <laughs> and thus uh, sort of diluting your gold reserves. Exactly. <laughs> here, here are precious metals uh, portfolio. But, but, but I mean, that's, that's kind of a semi-joke, semi, semi joke, clearly. But beyond that, I mean, this, if, you, if the question is, what are you worried about, then you know, have you got a spare couple of days? So there's clearly a lot of this is like a a worry rich environment, but the thing is, as Buffett has done a very good job of pointing out over the last fifty years, there are always things to be concerned about. You know, because he clearly sort of you know, wraps himself in the in the U.S. flag from time to time, or most of the time, I suspect now that these days, and he'll say, "Well, Uncle Sam's always delivered, and we've come through, you know, two world wars, etc., etc., etc." You probably don't want to bet against the US market. And to a lesser extent, you probably don't want to bet against the UK market, stock market, that is. Again, being a kind of Austrian school sympathizer, my biggest source of respect really has to go to entrepreneurs. These are the guys who take the real risks. Everyone else is just sort of following in their wake. So as long as there is an entrepreneurial spirit abroad, then I think people will do okay. Where I think people are, are being a bit sidetracked, particularly by politicians right now, is that you've had, again, this 10 years of, of just sort of nonsense, absurd monetary policy and all the rest. And, you know, banks that should have been allowed to fail back in 08, arguably, I, well, I think they should have been allowed to fail, but they clearly weren't. And as a result, there are now some huge question marks hanging over the, the credibility of, of free market capitalism. But my response to that would be, we don't have free market capitalism. We now have a system of crony capitalism enforced by politicians and, and their agents at central banks who don't really know what they're doing anymore. So this is an, un let's just say, I think we can probably agree it's an unstable equilibrium. But all that means is if you, know, if you don't know what's ahead, and we don't claim to know what's ahead, then you simply just cover all the bases. So the way we attempt to cover those bases is with the kind of asset mix that I've just described, have some deflation hedges some inflation hedges, and basically just high-quality assets full stop. But the high-quality, a large part of the high-quality will be a function of the low valuation that you're buying stuff at. And for an, for an investor, is it really worth you know, taking any notice of all this, all the news flow that, that we get sort of subjected to on a daily basis? Should we just be sort of you know, buying quality assets and just forgetting about them? Well, there is a great story. There's a great story from the States, and I, I believe this is a true story. It's not just a, not just a narrative. There was a, a broker had a, a, a couple as clients, and um, the, the husband died, and the widow asked uh, the broker to sort of look, uh, look over their affairs. And what had happened was that the, the wife had assiduously taken the broker's advice about buying and selling and holding and switching and blah, 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 and her portfolio was whatever it was. And the husband had simply taken all the buy recommendations, bought a whole bunch of shares, and then locked them in a coffee can and left them. And the upshot of that was that the husband's portfolio was worth multiple times what the wife's portfolio was worth. And that was very much a kind of buy, the, the, the epitome of a buy and forget approach. So I think there, there is something to being, I think, what, or to using what I think Buffett's called masterful inactivity, because there is definitely a temptation to overtrade. And I would go further and say, I think particularly in the context of you know, new technologies and social media, 
people should be very careful about the extent to which they allow the news cycle and what we might call fake news to disrupt the investment process, which should be on most occasions left well alone. So there will clearly be times when people need to respond to stuff that happens in the news. But 99% of the time, I suspect there's no need to do that. So uh, I think there are some serious, I mean, and this is this, I mean, we went through exactly this uh, conversation at the Master Investor Conference back earlier in the year, in the context of, you know, the, the journalism industry itself is dying on its knees. So you could argue that in a sense, it's almost like a sort of a, a natural justice being being wrought on 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 the fake news industry. That the, the provision of fake news itself is is not exactly in rude health. So I'm trying to think of his name, but there's there's a Swiss guy who's written about this. Uh, but his his um his conclusion is basically avoid news. His argument being that you know news as so we we so loosely would would define the term. News is to the brain what sugar is to the body. <laughs> it's just basically it's poisonous. So that's not to say clearly that you know you that you suddenly say right. Well, I'm not going to read anything. I'm not going to watch TV or turn on the radio. But I think it does make a very good argument for trying to drift away from like the daily news cycle and move much more in a direction of long form, well thought out, contemplative stuff rather than just sort of tabloid, tabloid opinion, opinion. So what you, what you're actually saying is read Master Investor magazine. Yeah, that's basically what I'm getting at. <laughs> right, and on that note, then Tim, thanks for um, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. My pleasure, and thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine, at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening.